Entertainment Podcast from Bottomline Technologies. Hello and welcome. I'm Rich Williams, host of the Payments Podcast, and today we're going to talk about the important new European directive PSD2. We'll be discussing what banks need to do to prepare for this new way of managing how customer data is shared securely and how payments are made. And we will explore what steps banks and payment service providers should take in order to respond to the opportunities and threats presented by PSD2 in this increasingly competitive payments landscape. For our podcast today, I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague Marcus Hughes, Head of Strategic Business Development. Thanks for joining us today, Marcus. My pleasure to be here again, Rich. Thank you. And thanks for inviting me. So, Marcus, to introduce this complicated subject, can you please let us have a few opening comments on what PSD2 is all about? By all means. Um, So, PSD2 is a great example of the unprecedented change which the European payments market is undergoing. This new legal requirement has great potential to drive radically new ways for businesses and for consumers to pay and get paid. PSD2 is actually an extended and updated version of the Payment Services Directive, which was originally passed into law across the European Union in 2009. It's also got similarities with the recent open banking regulation in the UK, but it's a way more ambitious project. This is because PSD2 not only spans all 28 countries of the European economic area, plus Iceland, Liechtenstein and Norway, but it also affects all banks and payment service providers in this sprawling community. In contrast, open banking only covers the nine largest UK banks, usually known as the CMA9. But just like open banking, the main objectives of PSD2 are to drive increased competition and innovation in payment services. To do this, PSD2 establishes a legal framework for sharing customer data and I'd emphasise this always with the customer's permission. The directive introduces a requirement that any third-party provider operating in this new PSD2 market, so such as fintech firms, they must be regulated. Secure connectivity between these regulated third-party providers and banks is achieved via APIs for sharing customer data. This data could be real-time balance and transaction information, provided by account-holding banks, or it could be customer payment instructions being sent to the banks, all via a single easy-to-use app. Thanks for that overview there. So noting that a key objective of PSD2 is to increase competition in payments, do you think this requirement will encourage new entrants to the market? Yes, certainly. Uh, PSD2 is attracting a wide range of organisations, which all plan to operate as regulated third-party providers, And they'll be offering account information services mainly, and in some cases they'll also offer payment initiation services. Um, For a whole host of small and large fintechs, um, PSD2 provides the best opportunity in a generation to disrupt the European payments market with innovative and personalised offerings. Uh, These new third-party providers are usually targeting very specific market segments with tailored or personalised products. So, for example, they're after millennials, high net worth individuals or small and medium sized businesses. Many of these fintech firms are startups or scale ups which have been attracting private equity. In addition to these small and fast moving fintech firms, major retailers and the tech giants such as Google and Facebook, 
who have large customer bases, these are also developing innovative payment services to reduce their own payment processing costs and to improve their customers' user experience when they are paying for goods and services. So could you explain in a, in a little bit more detail for us um, what you anticipate these new services for business customers under PSD2 to be like? Yeah, it's, it's early days yet, and, and there have been some technical uh, issues with testing and integration. But looking ahead, PSD2 will enable exciting new services, enhancing security, and improving transparency. Some of these new services are already appearing in the market as banks and fintechs complete their testing and become more comfortable with the new rules and opportunities. The first open banking and PSD2 solutions to hit the market have tended to target consumers, such as account aggregation services. These allow consumers to view all their payment accounts uh, via a single easy-to-use app. But banks and fintechs are increasingly realising that the small business and medium-sized corporate sectors represent a rich opportunity to offer new value propositions. Overlay services is the exciting new territory, and it's here that the value lies for payment service users. A few interesting use cases which banks and third-party providers could consider um, would include um, some of the, these ideas. Um, easier access to real-time multi-bank payments and cash management. This would be especially suited to small and medium businesses. Data aggregation from multiple sources for real-time analytics and better decision-making, for example, cash flow forecasting and cash allocation. Another example would be real-time payment fraud detection and prevention on a multi-bank basis. And then there are other new overlay services such as request to pay, which combines e-invoicing with flexible payment options and enhanced data, which will make it easier for businesses to reconcile incoming payments. And finally, another use case is um, enabling online lenders to make credit decisions more efficiently and provide faster access to credit facilities for consumers and small and medium-sized businesses. So specifically, how have banks been responding to PSD2 so far? In the beginning of this process, PSD2 was initially regarded by many banks as yet another compliance exercise. And it was really only the fintech firms which were getting excited about PSD2. But this is no longer the case. Banks have very firmly moved from viewing PSD2 as a compliance exercise to an opportunity to compete and innovate. So in both the UK and the European Union, banks have now recognised that it's strategically important for them to do more than just take defensive measures to merely comply with the new requirements to open up APIs to external third-party providers. So most banks have opted to be proactive and develop their own new services in order to compete more effectively, um, often beginning with account aggregation services and now extending into multi-bank payment initiation. They achieve this by using other banks' APIs to exchange data and payment instructions. With so much change, it's not surprising that some banks are feeling increased pressures. In some cases, this understandably is leading to a sense of project overload, and there's never been a, a time of greater need for trusted advisors, which can make it easier and faster for banks and payment service providers to comply with these new requirements and help them develop winning customer propositions. In some cases, project overload within banks risks becoming a practical barrier to innovation as banks wrestle with many conflicting demands on their time and budgets. 
Banking is a highly regulated industry and banks have to focus on mandatory compliance. In fact, compliance absorbs the lion's share of a bank's budget, leaving only limited funding available for discretionary spend on innovation. This risks, this risks having a, a negative impact on planning and innovative product development. It's therefore important for banks to find cost-effective ways to ensure their offering is competitive and up-to-date, as well as compliant. These are all highly compelling reasons why banks need to consider partnering with trusted advisors who have industry expertise and solutions, which can be white-labeled and help banks embracing digital transformation. When PST2 was first discussed, it was widely thought that many um, of these um, new breed of uh, startup fintech firms would move so fast and be so innovative that they would eat the lunch of incumbent banks. But much of this hype has proved exaggerated. And to a, to a large extent, many of these concerns about fintech firms eating bankers' lunch have now evolved into a more mature phase where fintech firms and bankers are more likely to be sharing lunch and partnering with each other. A number of well-established fintech firms have already established long-standing relationships with banks, for which they provide valuable solutions, often on a white-label basis. At bottom line, we've been doing this for years, and these well-developed partnerships are now more important than ever. We shouldn't forget that banks have many advantages over fintech startups. For example, banks have large customer bases and strong revenue streams. Likewise, banks are generally well-trusted by their customers, whereas many of the relatively unknown fintech firms still have to earn that trust. And this is proving a challenge for some startup fintechs, which are now seeking to monetize their bright ideas with genuine revenues in a highly competitive market. Banks and other large payment infrastructure providers, such as the major credit card uh, networks, also have the big advantage of deep pockets, which are deep enough to potentially acquire other fintechs. Now you mentioned fintech several times there, Marcus. So how are these new fintech startup companies managing in this new competitive environment of PSD2? And what advice would you have for any startups today? Well, as we've discussed, um, PSD2 has encouraged a lot of fintech new entrants. I admit I personally do see some parallels with the dot-com era at the start of the last century. And I know that makes me sound very old. Um, it was an exciting period of new ideas and innovation but it was followed by the dot-com bomb. Um, I, I was in a startup which crashed and burned due to the lack of cash flow. I'm confident that many fintech firms which have entered the market recently do have a great bright future, but many others will fail um, and we will need to see consolidation in the market. Valuations for startup fintechs are at an all-time high, attracting new entrants hoping to get rich quick. But I'd suggest fintechs do need to be patient because revenues will not flood in. Fintechs relying on open banking and PSD2 revenues will need deep cash reserves and highly supportive investors. Revenue models based on subscription and transaction only build up slowly, while many of the costs of building a new business are upfront costs. If I were able to um, offer advice to a startup fintech firm today, I'd say focus on doing one thing very well, but make sure it's unique. The market is already very crowded with Me Too solution providers. Partnerships with banks offer a great opportunity for wider distribution, but startups also need to recognize that a, a, a prospect partner bank with its huge resources can absorb an enormous amount of time and energy from a startup. Unfortunately, this can result in what I tend to call peanut butter syndrome, 
the poor startup with limited resources can find itself too thinly spread. So let's move on to discuss security now, if we may. Um, according to some of the press reports about open banking and, and PSD2, there are increased security risks in sharing customer data. But I've also heard that PSD2 makes payments more secure. Which version of this is true? I would certainly argue that the good intentions and theory behind PSD2 do make payments more secure, not least of all because it introduces a legal framework which requires third-party providers to be regulated. But there have been some technical challenges with API integration in this early phase. Um, PSD2 also imposes strong customer authentication, which requires multi-factor authentication, with only limited scope for exceptions or exemptions, I should say, from this, uh, and that's for low-risk transactions. What's more, PSD2 outlaws risky and unregulated practices such as screen scraping, and customers sharing their security credentials with unregulated third-party providers, all of which is very widespread today. Ironically, much of the press coverage has been a little misleading and has increased concerns about security when sharing customer data. Actually, the rules for sharing customer data are now more secure under PSD2. Um, understandably, customers want payments to be easy to use, instant and intuitive. Um, to use the latest terminology, payments need to be frictionless wherever possible. But it's essential to balance this objective for frictionless payments, also with the need for improved security. The European Banking Authority's regulatory technical standards do set out important security measures relating to strong customer authentication, uh, with which banks and service providers do need to comply. An overriding objective of the new payment regulations is to, protect, is to protect payment systems against financial crime and reduce the risk of fraud. PSD2 makes it clear that payment service providers are responsible for authenticating their customers and that they're also liable for unauthorised transactions. It's payment service providers, not the merchants, who are responsible for having in place robust mechanisms to verify the customer's identity. This is required whenever the customer is paying, accessing their accounts, or making a change to their personal details. These requirements also apply to all electronic payments, whether they're made by card or by account-to-account -account bank transfer. In addition, PSD2 covers euros as well as other currencies whether these payments are sent in and received entirely within the European Union or a cross-border payment which starts in the European Union or ends up in the European Union. So it's very comprehensive. As I've mentioned, strong customer authentication requires the use of multi-factor authentication with only limited scope for exemptions. MFA, the widely used acronym for multi-factor authentication, is a security technique which requires more than one method of authentication in order to verify a user's identity. This would be required in advance of that person being able to log into a system or initiate a transaction, such as approving a payment. So multi-factor authentication combines two or more independent credentials. This could be something the user knows, for example, a password. This is a knowledge factor. It could be something the user has, for example, a security token. Uh, this is known as a possession factor. Or it could be something the, the user is, which usually involves biometric verification. This is called an inherence factor. Examples of multi-factor authentication 
would include situations like swiping a card or inserting a USB token to a desktop and then entering a PIN. Another example would be logging into a website and requesting uh, and finding oneself requested to enter a one-time password, which the website's authentication server sends to the requester's phone or email address. And a third scenario would be scanning a fingerprint or retina answering a security question. I think that the requirement for strong customer authentication will not only enforce wider use of robust security techniques, such as password plus hard or soft token, it's also highly likely to drive much wider adoption of biometrics. Otherwise, strong customer authentication will simply introduce too much friction into the payment user experience. Um, the worry for merchants is that any increased friction in an online checkout may reduce sales since some payment service users will abandon the purchase if the user experience is poor or requires too many steps. This in turn could act as a serious drag on the adoption of bank transfer payment methods as being encouraged under PSD2. So strong customer authentication looks set to have a big, big impact on the way we pay and get paid. Um, you mentioned there there's some special exemptions to this requirement. Uh, so what are they, please? That's right. Um, under PSD2, there are a number of circumstances when a payment service provider is exempted from insisting their customers use multi-factor authentication. These include low-value transactions, that is, um, paying by a contactless card or paying for parking. Um, another important exemption from multi-factor authentication is transactions which have a low risk of fraud, such as paying a trusted beneficiary or moving money between uh, customers' own accounts. But the most important circumstance when a payment service provider is exempted from using strong customer authentication is when that payment service provider can demonstrate that they manage fraud down to very low levels. In order to qualify for this exemption, they need to use transaction risk analysis tools to detect unauthorized or fraudulent payment transactions. The requirements for this are set out in the European Banking Authority's regulatory technical standards. Articles 2 and 16 are really helpful and contain important detail on transaction risk analysis calculations and they need to be applied by payment service providers on a real-time basis in order to ensure they qualify for these exemptions. These requirements come into force in September 2019, so just around the corner really, and they're expected to have a really significant impact um, with the payment service providers' fraud rates becoming more important than ever. The user experience will be easier for those payment service providers who can demonstrate they've got low fraud rates. It's therefore likely that strong customer authentication requirements and exemptions will influence strongly which merchant segments payment service providers decide to target. For example, they may target only lower risk merchant segments in order to ensure a frictionless customer experience. As an alternative strategy, a different payment service provider might target a higher risk market segment and apply a strong set of multi-factor authentication capabilities. So the requirement for increased transaction risk analysis could result in quite a sophisticated um, segmented approach. So some payment service providers may even split themselves into separate regulated entities, which can each target a market segment, which is which has a different risk fraud profile and hence different security techniques. With multi-factor authentication or exemptions, 
according to the fraud risk profile of their customer or merchant portfolio. There's a lot of content to cover here with this topic, so we're going to end there and have part two in a couple of weeks where you can join us again on the Payments Podcast. Podcast from Bottom Line Technologies.